Good morning, church. It is so great to see you all. It really, it really does make me so happy to see all of you here um, after a summer where uh, we don't see each other as much because all of us are doing different things, traveling in different places, and now we're all back here together again, and I'm just so happy to, uh, to see. I hope you are too. I hope, in fact, would you turn to the person next to you, look them in the eyes and say, I am so happy you are here. Could you do that? Did you? Yeah. That was so good. Uh, I really, um, yeah, I really don't think that some of you meant that at all, uh, but, but some, of, some of you did. Some of you looked very happy, and, um, and, and seriously, I'm really glad to see you all. We're, we're um, as Becca reminded us earlier today, um, we're called together. We're called together, uh, and we do that every Sunday here. We're called together here every single week to remember, to remember who we are, to remember the love of God to remember who we belong to, to remember that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. That's why we do this every week. We remember. That's not the only place we're called together. Uh, The church is not just a place where you go. It is a people who go, who go out into the world. And so we're also called together out there to live in community and to be a witness and a fragrance of Jesus for a world that needs him. And so we're called together out there. We, We do that through our parishes and our parish groups and our small groups. We're called together here We're called together out there, and we do that for the renewal of all things. Y'all, Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And that means that he is renewing all things. He's he's renewing people. He's renewing relationships. He's renewing cities. He's renewing the earth. And through Jesus Christ, we get to be a part of that. We're called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ, the one who is risen from the dead. And so I just want to invite you, I mean, some of y'all I've, I've, I've not seen in a while. It's great to see you again. And I just want to invite you uh, to take, just consider what step might you take this fall to just take one step deeper into this common purpose and this common mission that we have as a church. Uh, maybe you show up here for worship once a month. Hey, double it. Why not? You know, start coming twice a month. Uh, maybe you have been coming for a while, but you've sort of hesitated to make a, a commitment to the community. Um, maybe come to our newcomers class and explore what it might mean to make a commitment to this covenant community. Uh, maybe you are a part of the church, but you really have held back from being known and knowing others and serving others. Well, maybe join one of our service teams on Sunday morning. Maybe come to tutoring on Wednesdays. Maybe join a parish group. Come to one of the parish gatherings tonight. So that's what I want to ask you and for you to ask yourself. What, what are you going to do to take a step deeper into our common mission together as this community of Christ. So friends, I'm, I'm excited uh, today because we're starting together a new six-week sermon series on one of my favorite books, um, and I'm sure it's one of your favorites as well. I know some of you love this book, the book of Jonah. And what I want you to do, though, hear me on this, what I want you to do is I want you to try to take everything that you think you know about this book and that you think this book is all about and try to just let that be evacuated from your mind. In fact, let's all say this together, okay? It's not about the whale. Can we say that together? Ready? <laughs> it's not about the whale or the fish or whatever it is, your zoological nitpickers, right? Uh, it's not about the whale. This book is about grace. It's about grace. And, and, you know, we love grace. Christians love grace. We'll talk about grace. But I want you to know, friends, that grace isn't always nice and warm and fuzzy and 
written calligraphy on your powder room wall. Uh, what we see in this story is that grace is disruptive. I woke you up. That grace crashes into our lives. That grace never leaves us the same. That God's grace is never meant to leave us as we are. But his grace intercepts, intervenes, pursues, and then ultimately overturns us. And God's grace never leaves us the same. It always changes us, turns us inside out, and then changes our vision of the world, calls us to love our enemies, to do things we didn't want to do previously. God's grace disrupts. That's what we're going to see in this, this, amazing, this amazing book for over the next few weeks. So let's, let's turn to God's word. Let's uh, turn to Jonah chapter 1, and I'm going to pray as we go to God's word. Father, thank you uh, for your disruptive grace that always crashes in and never leaves us the same. So we pray now that you would help me and all of us to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we will not just hear your word today, but that we will respond to it with obedience and with love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So hear God's word, friends, from Jonah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, and they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. This summer, we were at the beach for a few days, and we are blissfully past that stage uh, where our kids are really young and you, know, you basically have to keep your kids the whole time from ingesting sand and from being drowned in the ocean. And so you know, it's, it's lovely, uh, and I take pity on you parents who are still in that stage with young toddlers. And so now one of the things I love to do at the beach is to enjoy myself and gloat about the parents who are still in that stage. It makes me feel really good. And so we were at the beach, and I was looking at uh, this, this dad who was over to my right um, down the beach a little bit ways. And sure enough, he had this little toddler, two or three years old, and this little toddler was playing, playing in the sand, digging a hole. And then he just kind of started looking around like this, seeing if his dad was watching. And then suddenly he just jumped up and started running towards the ocean. And the dad, you know, put down his book and got up and walked to the sun uh, and picked him up and brought him right back and set him back down again. A few minutes later, the little boy's digging his hole, looks around, and this time he jumps up and he runs even faster, running towards the ocean. And again, the dad gets up, comes back, picks him up, brings him back again. That is the image um, that I had in my mind this week as I was getting into this first chapter. And I would love for you to have that image in your mind as well, of someone running away and then someone else taking a step to chase, and to pursue. You know, I don't know where you are today in your own spiritual life. Some of you have been Christians a long time. Some of you maybe are just exploring what Christianity is all about. But I think the most simple way you can boil down the message of Christianity is this. It is about running and pursuing. It is about human beings who persistently run away from God and a God who persistently pursues. 
Sometimes we call that sin and grace, but here in the story, it's just this simple story of someone running and a God who pursues. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to get into this story and look at it through that, that simple frame of the man who runs and the God who pursues. Okay? So let's start with the running man. Look, look with me at the text. We're going to really stick to the, to the text today. So look at verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. So Jonah is a prophet. Now, if you are a prophet in the Old Testament, you on the first day of your job, you get a job description, says prophet at the top, and there is one line of what your job description is. Receive message from God, deliver message from God. That is the only thing that you're supposed to do. It's really not that complicated. That's what you do. So Jonah, he is this great prophet, and he receives this message from God, and what does he do? He sets it down, he turns 180, and he runs the other direction. Just to give you a little bit of sense of the geography of the ancient world, because I think this helps us to see how, how dramatic this is. Nineveh, where God called Jonah to go, is in the modern-day region of Iraq, probably around the city of Mosul, right? So in the Middle East. Now, Tarshish, where Jonah got on the boat to go to, we don't know exactly where it is. Perhaps some people think of the region of Spain, but it was basically the furthest possible western point that was in the known world at the time. Okay, so this would be like I coming to you and saying, go to Miami, and you buy a one-way Greyhound bus ticket to Seattle, right? <laughs> you are going the opposite direction. So this is what Jonah does. He says, God says, go to Nineveh. He go east. He goes west. Go across the land. He gets on to go on the sea. Go to Nineveh, and he buys a one-way ticket to the furthest possible location on the planet Earth at the time. He runs. Now, why does Jonah run? Well, you know, we give Jonah a hard time. We make fun of him, we say, oh, this rebellious prophet. But listen, I just want us to kind of try to empathize with poor Jonah a little bit here first and just try to get into his head about how preposterous this thing that God was asking him to do. Because first of all, first of all, no prophet up to this point, if you read the Bible um, and you see this carefully, no prophet up to this point had ever been asked to go to a foreign land outside of Israel to deliver a message. You know, they were always been called in Israel to do so. So that was crazy. But secondly, it was crazy who the particular people were that God was sending Jonah to. They were, the Nineveh was the capital of the foreign empire, Assyria. If you know anything about Assyria, which I'm sure all of you do, you'll know that it was at this point the most cruel and violent and murderous empire to ever cross the earth and the sworn enemies of Israel. The, the Assyrians were famous for coming up with highly creative ways of murdering and killing people. They skinned, flayed, and burned people alive. They pulled out their victims' tongues. They stretched people's bodies until they snapped, and they forced people to parade through streets with the decapitated heads of their loved ones on poles. And that's just like the PG-13 stuff, right? <laughs> okay, so Assyria was the original terrorist state. It was. And in 722 BC, the Assyrians invaded Israel, destroyed the northern kingdom, and did all of those horrible things that I just told you. They did all those horrible things to the people of God. And so God comes to Jonah and says, hey, Jonah, I want you. You know those people that you hate and that you despise and that raped and murdered and pillaged and destroyed your friends and family? You know them? I'd like you to go and pay them a visit and talk to them about me. 
uh, nope. <laughs> nope. I mean, what would you do? Would you run? I probably would. And so Jonah runs. He runs. And, you know, we're not sure why he runs. It may be that he thought this to be a suicide mission, that he didn't want to walk in the streets of Nineveh and get his tongue pu- pulled out and get pulled apart and flayed and murdered himself. Or maybe, and we'll get to this a little bit later in the book, maybe he's actually afraid that his mission will be successful and that God would actually have mercy on the Ninevites. Maybe Jonah is terrified that God would actually have compassion on the people that he hated more than anyone else in the world. So whatever it is that's going in Jonah's mind, he runs. He is the running man. Now, let me try to apply this a little bit because, listen, I want you to hear me, brothers and sisters, the worst thing you can do with this book is to keep it cute, right? We don't want to keep this book cute. We don't want to make it into a cute little child story like, like you know, Rapunzel and Riding Hood about, you know, a funny little prophet who gets eaten by a cute whale and paint pictures of the whale and put it on our kid's nursery wall. Like, no, no, no. We may not do that. We may not domesticate this story because the author of this brilliant narrative intends for you to see yourself in this book. He is, he is, he is meaning to hold up this book like a mirror before you so that you too will look into it and see that you are Jonah, that you are just like this running prophet. Do you see that in yourself? Do any of you see that in yourself? You know, deep down, it wasn't just that Jonah had a problem with God's mission. Jonah had a problem with the God who gave him the mission. He had a deep distrust that this God knew what he was doing. He did not trust that God could be trusted, that God could be counted on. He doubted God's goodness and his wisdom and his justice. And what we see in Jonah is what we see in every human heart beginning with our ancient parents, Adam and Eve in the garden. If you, if you know that story in Genesis 1 and 2, think back to it. Think back to it. God gave Adam and Eve a beautiful garden. He gave them everything they could have ever wanted. He put one single boundary around one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happened? They did not trust that God had their good and their happiness in mind. Now, I want to be clear. Adam and Eve never said, Hmm, let's be evil. Let's destroy our lives and ruin the world. No, you know, they never said that. What is, they said, they thought, we just want to be happy. Uh, God's commands do not look like they will give us what we need to be happy. And we can't trust him. God is not for us. We need to take matters into our own hands. And so what do they do? They ate. And then what do they do? Do you remember? They fled and they hid. They hid from the presence of God. They stopped trusting his grace. They stopped believing that he had their best interests in mind and they ran and they hid from the God who loves them. Friends, this is Jonah, this is Adam and Eve, and this is us. If you know your own heart, even a teensy-weensy bit, you will know that you have a Jonah heart. You have a heart that runs from God too. Some of you here, let me just try to speak uh, candidly and directly to you here for a moment. Some of you here, when I say you are running from God, you know exactly what I'm talking about because it is happening right now in your life in a very conscious way. Uh, you may have actually once been a committed Christian or had a dynamic relationship with God, but something happened, I don't know what, but the fire has gone cold, and it has been so long since you really connected with the Lord that at this point you don't even know how to get back. There's some of you here uh, who are facing some really, really difficult stuff. I know because I talked to you, and you are beginning to distrust that God is for your good. 
and you are having a hard time believing because of something that's going on in your life, that this God could be trusted, and you are wondering whether he is worth following anymore. And, and, I, and I'm pretty sure also in a room this big, there are some of you who know that God is asking you to do something that you don't want to do and to make a sacrifice that you don't want to make and to give up something that you really, really don't want to give up, and you know that, and you have just decided, hey, you know what? God is not out for my good, and I'm going to try to figure out how to live my life my own way. And so when I say that there are some of you who are consciously running from God, I am absolutely certain that there are some of you in this room that know exactly what I'm talking about. But I also want to speak to the rest of us because I want to be clear, this book is written not for wild uh, heathens. This book is written for good religious folks like you and me. Who is the runner? It's Jonah. It's a, he's a prophet of God. He, is a, he, he knows the Torah. He loves the Bible. He has the Ten Commandments memorized. He's an orthodox uh, leader of the church. This is the man who is running. This is the man who needs greatest conversion in this story, not the Ninevites and the pagans, but the religious man. And this is most of us. I mean, y'all look so good in church. Dressed, I mean, look at you. you. You could be doing a thousand different things. And here you are, so obedient, so compliant, sitting in church, all dressed up, listening to this preacher. A lot of you love Jesus. A lot of you, you know, love the Bible. But yet, until you see that at the core of your being, you are a fugitive on the run, and until you see that every day, in some way, you try to escape God's authority and push back against his rule and distrust his plan and you suspect his motives and you center your life around your own needs and desires instead of God's will and way, until you see that you are, like we're going to sing in a moment, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love, until you know that about yourself, you will never, ever, ever understand grace. And you will never, ever, ever be able to be a vessel of grace for other people as Jonah is so incapable of being in this story. So we are all running. And what happens when we do this? When we run from God, the story could not be any more clear that the movement away from God is movement that descends into death, not to life. Look at, look at the text again with me. Look at verse two. I'm actually, I, I'm, I have a bone to pick here with the NIV translators in verse two, because if you have the ESV, you'll see which is translated correctly here, that God actually says to Jonah in verse two, arise, go to Nineveh. So it is a calling to rise up. The call, to obey the calling of God is always to rise up into the greater plane. And yet what does Jonah do instead? Verse three, he went down. He went down to Joppa. And then he went down into the ship. And then verse five, he went down into the inner belly of the ship. And then verse five, he laid down to go to sleep. Do you see what this brilliant author is doing here? God says, arise, go up. Jonah says, I'm going down. And he goes down, and he goes down, and he goes down, and he goes down. He wants to get away from God, and the only result is downward movement towards the pit of death. We see that the further Jonah gets from God, uh, the more detached he gets from reality. He thinks that running from God will set him free and give him the life he wants, and instead, it does the opposite. Instead, it, it, it sinks him down into this literal sleep of death. This, this word sleep, it's, this is not like a 20-minute power nap that you take after lunch. Uh, this, the Hebrew word there, it's hard to translate. It means like unconscious death sleep. I mean, he's got a pulse. He's breathing, but he is detached. 
He's detached from reality. He's detached from God. He's detached from himself. And this is what happens when we run away from God, when we distrust his goodness and grace and try to live life on our own. We start to go down and descend into death. And you don't see it first. It's like toxic radiation that you don't notice until much later. But the more we resist and rebel and drift and run, the more detached we get from reality, the more cut off we get from God. And sooner or later, you, you don't even know how to get back anymore. You know, yesterday we were on a retreat for um, training some of our leaders. And we went around and, and we all shared our testimonies, our faith stories about how we came to know the grace of Jesus. And it's always a very powerful time. And in my group, there were several people who talked about the, this stage in their life where they very consciously walked away from God and lived separate from him. And what was interesting is that all of them said that they believed at that moment that God was trying to thwart them and thwart their happiness, and yet as they pursued what they thought would make them happy and as they pursued what they thought would also immediately bring fulfillment, instead what they found is they got emptier and emptier and more and more numb until they didn't even know what life was about anymore. And that is the sleep of death. That is the result of our running from God. The Bible says the only way to life and happiness and joy is to center our lives and surrender our lives to God who loves us, but our fugitive hearts just don't believe it. We just don't believe it. And so we run. Every day, we run. So we've seen the running man. Now let's turn to the pursuing God. Let me ask you this question. What do you think Jonah needs here? Does he need a lecture? Does he need a church service? No. Does he need to know the Ten Commandments? No, he knows them already. Does he need to memorize big chunks of the Torah? No, he already has it memorized. Does he need religion? No, certainly not. He's more religious than we are. What does Jonah need? I'll tell you what he needs. He needs an intervention of grace. He needs God's disruption. If you are ever in the world of addiction, you'll know that many people are so trapped in their addiction that they actually need someone to intervene. They need a group of friends to actually speak the truth to them in a way that they cannot currently see. And this is what God begins to do. In God's love, he begins to intervene through grace in Jonah's life. The first way he does that is through people. I love the people uh, on, the, on the boat. Uh, the captain, the sea captain of all people, this pagan sea captain, God chooses to use. Look at verse six. The captain wakes him up. He shakes him. He says, wake up. How can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. The, the captain is reminding him of what matters, that he has a purpose. He's reminding him of his God. And God will often send people in our lives to wake us up and to bring us back into reality again. You know, I loved um, Parker Hale, one of our elders, was sharing his story yesterday. He told me I could share this with you, that um, when he was uh, a young adult, very happily uh, oblivious of God and his grace, um, and having a whole lot of fun in his life, he would go every week or so to get his shoes shined by a man in his business office downtown. And he got to know this man, and one day this guy is shining his shoes, and he looks up at Parker, and he says, Parker, let me ask you something. Do you know Jesus Christ? And Parker said, what? No, I'm, I'm good, man. I'm just here to get my shoes shined. And yet, the question would not leave him. He, he could not set it aside. And the more he went back, the more this shoeshine man shared with him. And eventually, the shoeshine man invited Parker into his home. And they became good friends. And he saw his family, and he saw his joy, and he saw the way that he was living. And eventually, Parker Hale got caught 
by God through the shoeshine man. I got caught, you know, when I was an angry and depressed suicidal teenager. I got caught by a youth pastor who would not let me go. He would not stop calling me. He would not stop showing up to eat lunch with me at my school. He would not stop coming to my house. It was so annoying. (laughs) But I got caught. I got caught by God through his servant. You know, sometimes I still get caught by my friends, by my sweet wife, Sarah, who, you know, sometimes when I get caught in in guilt and shame, I will literally go to sleep. That's kind of the way I escape. I literally, like, go to sleep. And it takes a good friend or Sarah or someone to wake, literally wake me up sometimes and say, what are you doing? You are loved. You belong to God. One of the things that we do together every week when we come, this is why actually showing up here, as boring as it might be sometimes to show up here on Sunday morning every week, one of the things we're doing is we are getting woken up. Maybe I'm the shoeshine man for you today. Maybe God through me or someone else here is telling you, will you wake up? Will you come back to God? Okay, so he uses people. He also uses, this is hard, he uses storms. So look at verse uh, four. It says, the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. This is fascinating. It says the Lord sent. The word there in Hebrew is the, word, the Hebrew word hurled. It's the same word that's used um, in, the, in the Davidic um, military exploits where David's men hurled swords. So God, I just have this beautiful image of God sort of pulling a hurricane uh, out of his pocket and balling it up and just hurling it, you know, right at Jonah. Now, if you don't know the story very well, you might be thinking, what a vindictive deity. You know, shame on you, you rebellious prophet. I'll show you. You know, just, is that what God's doing? Is he just like going after him, punishing him because Jonah has been such a fool? Well, on the one hand, our sin does have consequences sometimes. And sometimes there are storms in our lives that are the result of our sin. But, but many other times there aren't. In fact, these sailors are caught up in this storm and it was Jonah's sin that caused it, not theirs. But here's what we know. We know that all of us face storms, pain, suffering, sorrow. Sometimes these are results of our consequences of our own sin. Most of the time they're not. It actually doesn't help for you to try to figure it out because only God in his wisdom knows. But here's what we do know, is that God in his sovereignty and in his love always uses storms to call us back and to wake us up. He drives, it is his disruptive grace. It is to awaken us to his love and power, to remind us of our deep need for him and to call us back to himself. You know, I read a book this week uh, in which the author told this fairy tale that I had never heard before. And so I wanna tell it to you. This is especially for you kids that are here. Listen, once upon a time, there was a wicked witch who lived in a cottage in the deep, dark woods. And she had a bed in her cottage that was the most comfortable bed that anyone has ever slept on. But the bed was full of dark magic. And if you slept in that bed, and if you were asleep in that bed when the sun arose, you would turn to stone. And the witch's garden was littered with travelers who had turned to stone. The witch had a little slave girl that she enslaved and made to serve her. And one day, a traveler came along, a young man, and this slave girl fell in love with this young man. And she did not want to see him turn to stone. So before he went to bed that evening, she filled his bed with thistles and thorns and sticks and stones. 
So as he lay in that bed, he just tossed and turned and he was not able to sleep the whole night long. And in the morning, he got up after a sleepless night and as he marched out the door, he turned angrily to the slave girl and he said, how dare you treat your traveling visitors with such disrespect? How dare you fill my bed with sticks and stones? And as he walked away, she said under her breath, those were sticks and stones of love. The misery of that night was infinitely smaller than the misery you would face had you had a comfortable night. And friends, this is what the Lord says to us. He says, these are sticks and, and stones of love. You know, the, the, the most terrible thing that could ever happen to you is not suffering. It's not pain. The most terrible thing that could ever happen to you is that you never are awakened to your own pride and self-centeredness and self-sufficiency. The most horrible danger that you ever face is that you never wake up to your fugitive heart. How horrible would it be to wake up one day and realize that it's too late and that you're turned to stone? What the devil wants more than anything else is to give you a charmed and prosperous life where you never have any trouble and you never have any difficulties and you never see your running heart. But God will not allow it. He loves you too much, and he will put sticks and stones and thorns and thistles in your bed to call you back, to wake you up, to draw you back to him, to awaken you to your need. He does this because he is a God of love. He is a God of love. So I want you to do something maybe that you've never done before. I want you to think about a storm in your life right now, something that's really hard, and do something crazy. Thank God for it. Say, thank you, God, for giving me a storm that awakens me to my need, that awakens me to your great love, and thank him for his disruptive grace. He's pursuing you because he loves you. So friends, this is a story about God's reckless love, his disruptive grace, his willingness to crash through any distance, any barrier that keeps us from him. It is the story of a running man and a pursuing God, and I hope that you are convinced that this is also your story and mine, that we are running. As sons of, of Adam and daughters of Eve, uh, we distrust God. We do not believe that he loves us. We take our lives into our own hands. We disobey and distrust his rule. We live for ourselves. And yet, and yet, God pursues. He pursues in his love. The good news of the gospel is that God has come for us. That in the person of Jesus, we do not have to get to God. God has come for us. He was so committed to capture us in his love that he crashed into our world in the incarnation, becoming one among us in the person of Jesus, living for us, dying for us, diving into the storm for us, suffering our judgment for us, rising for us, sending the spirit to pursue and woo us and draw us back. The ultimate demonstration of God's pursuing love is the person of Jesus. And so I just want to dare you. Can you just think of anything, anything at all, anything in your life that could ever get God to stop loving and pursuing you? Can you think of anything? Can you think of any choice that you've made, any divorce, any alcohol, any drugs, an abortion, uh, uh, any dark and secret thing that you were hiding in your heart, anything, that you, any way that you were, I just dare you. Can anything stop the love of God? No, nothing. You cannot stop God's love from coming for you. And so the very best question that you could ever ask yourself is not, have I lived well enough? Have I done good enough? 
Have I strived hard enough? Have I jumped high enough? The very best question that you could ever ask yourself is this, will you be found? Will you surrender to the pursuing love of God? There is neither, nothing, neither death nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation that is able to separate you and me from the pursuing love of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we're just so grateful for the pursuing love of God that disrupts our lives. It is painful sometimes. There's a lot of people in this room right now that are in pain and they're in storms. And I just pray, God, that because of what they've heard today, that they would believe that there is love in the storm, that there is love behind the storm. And I pray that if there are any here today uh, that are far from you, that are way, way out in Tarshish, that they would see that the love of God is coming for them, that even them being here this morning is a sign that God is after them. And I pray that they would surrender today and receive your love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.